Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards. Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me. Yeah, I got swagger. They see me, see me strutting. Hello everyone, welcome back to The Grid. I'm with a very special guest today, Dan Smith, a super high roller poker professional who's won more than $27 million in live poker tournaments. He's also one of the most charitable poker pros and you definitely want to look for his double up drive that happens at the end of each calendar year where he raises millions of dollars for some of the most effective charities in the world, including orgs like the Against Malaria Foundation and Strong Minds. I also personally know Dan from the chess world where he plays in the Pro Chess League for the Montclair Sopranos. Hey, Dan, thanks so much for coming on to talk about a pocket pair in a super high-stakes spot. Thanks, I think this is going to be fun. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about the hand. Where did it take place, and what point of the tournament was it at? It was the 2015 Super High Roller Bowl in Las Vegas. Super High Rollers are super common these days, but this was, at the time, one of the five or ten biggest tournaments of all time, and it was very early on in the poker stream days. So this tournament was getting a ton of coverage from the very beginning. I had accumulated a huge stack. I had been playing a lot with Phil Helmuth, so we were all over the TV tables, maybe a quarter of the chips at one point, so I was like really in a great position to win. At this point, there were ten players left. I was second in chips. I think it was seven pay and there were eight left. So seven pay, eight left, you're second in chips. You said there weren't a lot of super high rollers before this. There were 100K tournaments and I would say outside of the one drop, this was the biggest tournament that had gone. They had maybe had a 500 the year before. Maybe it was like the fifth biggest tournament that's ever run. As a high stakes professional, does it make you more nervous to play in a super high roller? I think it's something that you get better with over time. Um, this is one of the first times really playing on the camera for an extended period of time. And also when you know everyone is watching for a big tournament, you have investors. I would say the stakes are very clearly the highest and everyone feels it. I think that's comforting for people to hear because, you know, a lot of people, the only 10K they play a year is a WSOP main and certainly you see that um, the players on TV get nervous. So that happens even at the higher level. I find it comforting to realize even if I feel like a little anxiety by, that's like a tightness in my throat or my heart is beating. I know every the other people are feeling the same thing and probably to a much more severe like degree. So by comparison, I find that somewhat comforting. When you're in a new situation, such as playing for life-changing money or you're playing on cameras or you're playing a new game, it's gonna be stressful. So this particular hand, you had pocket sixes. This is the grid and nobody, luckily nobody has taken that hand yet. And tell us about the chip stacks, what position you were in, how'd the hand go? Rainer Kempe raises in the cutoff. He was the third biggest stack. 
he is probably going to be raising a fairly normal range of hands here. Like, sure, he's covered, but on the other hand, he's in position. The stacks were deep enough that, like, that he doesn't have to worry about somebody just putting him all in. I was in the small blind with a covering stack, two sixes. I think it was a clear call. I could certainly show down a winner of opportunities to bluff. Hitting a set would be a great result, usually. So I called, and I believe it was Fedor in the big blind who folded. We went heads up to the 10-8-6 flush draw board. At this point in my career, I would have played it as a dark check. Maybe I would mix in some leads at this point, but checking everything I think is a totally valid strategy as well. He bets 175,000, which was probably around 40% of the pot. And here I decided to raise to 475. I was setting up an all-in on turns. I could of course be bluffing if he has over pairs or 10x, he's already in a very tough spot. He ended up going all in, and despite the fact that many people on the internet were trying to tell me that I should have folded, I think it was a very clear call. Unfortunately, he had a higher set, but even with the... I mean, I still do have an out twice, and I had the backdoor flush, which is going to come in maybe 4% of the time, and the backdoor straight outs are not insignificant, so I would guess I still probably had like 8% equity even under like the worst case scenario. And you didn't get there? I did not get there. This was obviously uh, right on the bubble, so you flatted sixes, um, cut off for small blind. Is that a spot where you normally have some kind of mixed strategy with sixes, or would it kind of be played the same today in like a regular MTT, not with that bubble pressure? I don't think sixes play particularly well as a three bet, and they're too good to fold. So pretty much the way you play the hand then would be exactly how you would play it today in almost every circumstance. I don't think I wasn't randomizing at the time, at least not explicitly. Um, maybe I would do some calling on the flop or some leading, but I think the way I played it is the way that it should be played most of the time. And nowadays you do more randomizing? If I am playing against great players, uh, more or less, all of the best players are randomizing. How do you do it? It's a secret. Meditation? Yeah, I just, uh, I meditate and I just get in touch with the universe and then, uh... It gives I... you a number. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes you don't have to explicitly randomize if you're just aware that sometimes you're supposed to bet and sometimes you're supposed to check. But I would say there are certain things, like especially pre-flop, that are... You don't really have a strong inference either way. Why is this hand one that you picked for the grid? Like, what about this was pivotal? I, I, you you didn't you said that he, you, you were the covering stack. I was down to two and a half blinds. I survived maybe two orbits. I shoved, I doubled up, I got one through, but I ended up busting out. I think after this hand, my perspective on poker changed a lot. I remember the next day I woke up and I was feeling completely drained. I didn't know what to do with myself. I had my normal cup of coffee. And I still felt exhausted. And then I was just like running through the uh, like what I could do. I could have try more caffeine. I could try exercise. I could go gamble. I considered going out and partying and just like drinking until I wasn't feeling uncomfortable. I ended up doing a hot yoga class and I kind of just like reflected on what actually just happened. I bought into a poker tournament and even I had sold action. I was playing maybe with 3% of my net worth in play. I was in a great position to win. If I had 
won the tournament, I would have 13x my investment. So let's just say I would have won 40% more dollars than I had in the world, and I pay taxes on it. So at the end of the day, I would have had 25% more money. And then I thought about what would be different, and I couldn't think of a single thing. Like, I'd be gambling bigger that year, and it would have been fun for a short period of time. And I ended up coming to the really refreshing thought that even winning the biggest tournament of the year wouldn't have changed my life. I feel like ever since I've had a much healthier relationship with poker, and ironically, that ended up being the biggest summer of my career. Did this all come to you during the hot yoga class? I meditated a bit afterwards. I just like stayed in there and like reflected on it. Wow, that's a great endorsement for hot yoga. I think that it's this, uh, the physical and mental workout that it gives you is really underrated. Well, I think it's rated really highly, at least by people who do it, but I almost never take a yoga class and then afterwards feel like it was a bad idea. Though I haven't really been doing any of it this summer, so maybe I should uh, practice what I preach. (laughs) So to go back to the hand, you didn't have any regrets over the way that you played the hand. And you mentioned people on the internet say that you should fold the set. Was that any good players or was that just the... There were some good players who I think had feedback about not check raising, but I think the way I played it was pretty clearly, or at least... I was very confident it was the right way. Some people forget that even just because you're playing poker on a really big stage or for a lot of money, the rules of poker haven't changed. But when you start trying to like get above the game, that's when people might make like these total little disaster mistakes. At the end of the day, we were playing not particularly deep stack poker because it was a tournament and I flopped a set on like a very wet board. The money just has to go in. So people who think that you can fold spots like that, they would end up making bigger mistakes in other scenarios? Um, Yeah. If you are regularly folding sets to very good players, people could just uh, understand that you're someone who could be bluffed. Some people will be playing more timidly because of the situation. And there are people who can just go on to the second level, realize that it's a scary situation. And because it's scary, they could start playing more aggressively. At the end of the day, even when you're playing super high stakes poker, it's still poker. A strategic question, you mentioned checking dark. Do you mean that you check your whole range or that you would actually announce check in the dark? I meant just checking my entire range. I think on such a connected board, when I have a kind of condensed small blind range, it's possible some leads would make sense. Because I have seen you on TV check in the dark. That's why I asked. And I think maybe it was either that year or another year in the super high rollerball. There was a point when I was definitely not leading out of the big blind. I would check dark and also just like a no cost to it if I'm never leading on any flop. I have picked up live tells on people when they react to the flop before they act. I used to think that by checking dark, I take away that element and just speed up the game a little bit. But I do think that there are some select situations where leading can make sense. So now you're not really checking in the dark anymore. Yeah, I was wondering about that because I guess checking in the dark, it actually has some strategic value, doesn't it? I think there is a little bit of strategic value. Generally, it's in a situation where if you uh, suspect that the other person has like superior range, they're the one who's supposed to be betting, like giving them the action. But as far as whether you're like physically looking at the flop or not, I don't think it especially matters. I'm sure that you being one of the highest stakes, um, best 
tournament players in the world, you've also had tournaments where you've busted and you haven't felt 100% at peace at your, with your play, right? You could have sized something differently, etc. In uh, December of this year, I made a thin river raise against Daniel, which was haunting me for a few days. I don't know if you watched any of that stream, but the way in which he was acting was unlike anything I've ever seen at the poker table. It was really bizarre. And I ended up just going with a read that he had a worse value hand. And if I decide I have the best hand 80% of the time, I can get away with raising. And then he ends up putting me all in, which was kind of jarring because then the reaction, you have to decide whether your read from a moment ago was reasonable or maybe the decision was that like you have to try to come to terms with maybe your decision was just bad and now you're in this situation where you made a bad read and now what, what do you do with the new information? I generally feel good about, okay about busting tournaments, but when I think I've made a mistake, uh, it could be painful. It's not like I'm in complete control of my emotions. I got third place in the Triton Super High Roller this year in Jeju, and despite the fact that cashing for $1.3 million is a lot of money, I was just really pissed off and in a pretty awful mood for a few hours. Just similar to this hand in the super high roller bowl where you bubbled, it's just very disappointing to be on TV and not to succeed, even if it doesn't have a major change in your life if you win. You get emotionally invested in the tournament. At that moment in time, the $1.3 million was the worst I could have done. So that became my new baseline reality and I was started aspiring for like the $3.5 million first prize. So what about people for whom they're in a tournament situation because it's a big field and it's maybe a shot that they're taking once or twice a year for something like the PSBC or the um, WSOP main, their life will change a lot if they get lucky or unlucky. They wouldn't be able to have this hot yoga revelation that everything was cool. So what would be the way for somebody like that to deal with that? After a disappointing loss? Yeah. That's hard. A lot of these situations just are much easier when you're financially secure. Everyone's situation is different. You take a step back and you're able to enter a ten dollars or $25,000 tournament, life is probably good on some level. Like I think people have all these crazy unrealistic expectations with the main event when for most people say you're one in 5,000 to win. It almost never happens. So you're saying for pros because there's about eight, 9,000 players in the tournament. So you're giving them like about two, two entries worth of chances to win. Yeah. And then for a super high roller, how much bigger do you think that edge would be? One in how many? Without giving it too much thought, I'll guess, I am 1,000 to one to win each year. My heart wants to say it's more likely than that. And then I could maybe just accumulate a huge stack and apply pressure and run the tables over. The logical part of my brain just kind of thinks there's a cap at you can only win so often. Also with big fields, there's some weird math stuff going on that I don't think anyone really understands how it works. What do you mean weird math stuff? Uh, compounding probabilities, odds of running up a stack. How do ROIs change in a 500 player field versus 8,000? They get bigger, but is it proportional? Is it like magnified by a huge degree? It's, I feel like everyone is just guessing. So what do you think the, the most surprising thing to people would be about the super high roller tournament scene? The most surprising thing? About the way that people play or the, the culture? I don't know if this is surprising. I think it is very cool that I could have a good relationship with people. 
for the most part, I might only see these people at the poker table when we're competing for big money. Every so often, I'll get dinner with them and we could have fun despite the fact that someone just put a beat on me the night before for a quarter million dollars. People mostly do a good job of separating what happens at the table from their personal lives. And when you play in a tournament like the WSOP main or other large field events like EPTs and WPTs, and you play against professional poker players who aren't at the super high roller level, what is like the n- number one thing that you think they do worse? Like let's just say like the 500 best player versus like the 20th best is probably pretty worse across the board. Their preflop ranges aren't as precise, their bet sizing. It's pretty hard to generalize. Bet sizing is a very complicated thing. And some people, like sometimes you play with a mid-tier regular and it's just pretty clear they don't understand how bet sizing is supposed to work. In terms of exploits or mostly theory? If someone is a tier three player and they're playing against me, they should be playing their best theoretical game. If you're not a great player and you're trying to exploit me, it's just not going to work out. If you are playing against me, you should be playing close to your best strategy. And I, if I am seeing people's best strategies, they are often not very good. And is it that their bet sizing is just bad across the board or on certain types of flops, not geometric? What's the? Sometimes you just see a bet size that should never be used in any situation. There is a cost to reopening the action, and I think people are sometimes not aware of that. So you're saying like in a situation, for instance, where you're in position and you have a small bet size and sometimes we just never exist? It doesn't really benefit you in any way, and it allows the other person to raise. You sometimes see that kind of thing from professionals who aren't at the top tier. Yeah. And how would you recommend that those players get better at that skill? I think a thing that I did well when I wasn't one of the best players, when I would try to mimic the way the best players play. If you see Steven Chidwick do something and it's very different from what you are doing, try to consider why, because he's probably given it a lot of thought. I think with my chess background, that came kind of naturally to me, where players at all levels would mimic the best players. And then in poker, at least many years ago, people would be playing very differently from the way great players would play. In 2011, I started having a breakthrough with my success at the tables, and some of it, I think, was a conscious decision that I was going to start trying to play more like Phil Ivey. So I stopped holding in the big blind, and I stopped holding the three bets, and I started betting bigger across the board, like closer to pot or overbetting rivers. And I started having a lot more success. That's pretty amazing. It seems so simple. Like, just start playing more like Phil Ivey, and like, start playing more like Magnus Carlsen. <laughs> Maybe it's different because I am so much better at poker, but I would find the idea of playing like a chess player much more challenging. Yeah, because in chess, the tree is just so much vaster because you have to play like Magnus Carlsen for so many moves. There's no thing of candidate moves in poker, I think. I guess maybe you could turn a crazy hand into a bluff. In chess, sometimes these players make a move I haven't considered, and... I feel like in poker that shouldn't really happen where you're at least at the point where you could know what the options are, but maybe I'm just a very good poker player and a mediocre chess player and I just can't see clearly enough. In chess, what if the strongest players in the world are playing an opening like the Berlin, which may not be as effective for an amateur player. For those of you listening who don't play chess, the Berlin is kind of a very dry opening that you can play for with black and you're much more likely to get a 
a draw if you play it really well and you have it really well prepared. And sometimes it could even take an aggressive player like Gary Kasparov off balance and you can win with it. Would that be analogous to somebody just kind of showing up and seeing Stevie overbet and not executing it correctly? I mean, couldn't there be kind of a corollary there? I think you make a good point and I would change what I'm saying to only people who are playing at a relatively high level. Like even at my level in chess, a realization I had is I don't need to play the GTO openings. I'm not going to be able to replicate what the computer does. So if you're playing 10 cent, 25 cent with your friends and you're not using like the perfect ranges, it's going to be okay. I'm certainly not going to play the Berlin anytime soon. So maybe it's a little bit of a contradiction there, but I guess in poker, you're forced into the same situations. Everyone has it folded to them on the button and then they race. And you might see Stevie fold King-5 offsuit when you would have raised it. That is a situation that you will exactly be in. That I think is more like, okay, we're on move nine of the Berlin and I don't know who plays the Berlin. Uh, let's say Fabiano plays... King-8. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You could be in the exact situation when in chess, I think, avoiding, like, playing your opening to your strength is more appropriate. Is there an example of, like, a bet size or a thing in poker that people do where you immediately realize that they haven't really studied very much? Small bets in position. And that's not to say they don't have their place. Like, they can be used sometimes. I think it's somewhat common to see a bet that's misused. I mentioned in the intro that you were playing for the Pro Chess League team, the Montclair Sopranos. You had a very um, glorious victory this year um, against four-time U.S. champion Alexander Shabalov, one of the most creative players in the United States. I'm a huge fan of Shaba, as we call him. So that's pretty awesome. What is the feeling of happiness compared in doing well in poker and doing well in chess? This is going to sound ridiculous, but I was feeling more like hyped and emotional after that game than I am after cashing a just like medium tournament for six figures. I won $50,000 yesterday at the Aria and I didn't really feel anything. It's just another day at the office. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, sometimes it rains. When I played that game of chess, I was real hyped. So there's no poker corollary to that? Well, I've been doing this for so long. If you make the stakes big enough, I think I still would get very excited. But I kind of view gambling as a drug, and after you've been doing it for so long, like the hit required to get high, like playing a $1,500 event at the World Series won't do it anymore. You know, the concept for this podcast, The Grid, is partly based on chess, as we're talking about an 8x8 board versus a 13x13 board. As a chess player, I mean, we both know that visualization is probably the number one thing in chess to become a great player to be able to visualize accurately and also visualize the right things so is there any poker corollary to that the ability to visualize ranges i have really really bad spatial awareness so maybe that's why i'm not a better chess player poker is just such a big game it's really hard to pinpoint certain things emotional control is pretty huge and there's a shortage of elite players who are hotheads so I think that is pretty important. I guess maintaining your composure is going to allow you to execute the strategy that you've worked on. These tournaments they have shot clocks so within your 30 seconds you have to like come up with the size of the pod and then think about the analogous situation and then like think about how you're applying your strategy and sometimes 
There's the solver crazy strategy that might have five bet sizes and you want to simplify it down to one or two. So you have to be cool-headed enough to do that in a short amount of time. That sounds really difficult. Poker is a very hard game. I very regularly feel lost when I'm playing. When a situation comes up, I legitimately don't know what to do. A hand yesterday when I got put all in on the river for 2.7x pot on the end, and I had no idea like what frequency I was supposed to bluff catch the river with. I had a pair and a flush blocker on a paired board when the flush comes in, and I thought it could have been a pure fold, or I also could have imagined a situation where my hand, the blocker effects are quite good. And I had 30 seconds, and I had no idea what to do. What'd you do? I folded. And did you look it up later using a solver, or...? It was a pure fold. Did you find out from friends who knew the spot better than you, or did you look it up on Pio Solver? Uh, Pio. My flop butt size was inaccurate, though. I bet too big. I had a theory that there's so many different mental qualities to make a good player, and each single one of them is, like, pretty easy, but finding all of them in the same person is, like, pretty rare. Can you give a few examples? Like the ability to be patient, the ability to not get emotional after losing a big pot, the ability to not get overexcited when you're doing really well. It's like seems like there's like 10 of them and the not to feel underconfident when you played one hand slightly badly, not to get overconfident when you're running over the table. They all seem so simple and people who have them all naturally, it just seems easy sometimes to them. I don't think it's easy to anyone and even certain great players make mistakes. Some people have like a near photographic memory of ability to like remember their preflop charts. I don't, and I will have hands. I'll just raise a hand that's supposed to be folded or I'll call a hand in the big blind that's I've looked up before that isn't a call, but everyone at every level makes mistakes. Magnus Carlsen makes a bad move, let's say one in every 25 moves. I think a similar thing happens in poker. Being aware of your strengths is totally a valid thing. And if you make a mistake, it's just not the end of the world. You just got to keep playing. And those mistakes that you mentioned are pretty small mistakes though, right? Like in terms of EV calling, you know, Jack 8 plus instead of Jack 9 plus or something. Yeah, it's not that expensive. Um, sometimes you can make a much bigger mistake when like, say you're... 180 big blinds deep and you're starting to like four bet for stacks with a hand that's just not good enough like what say you have ace king offsuit and a tight player three bets you out of the blinds there are times when i would say four bet getting it in would just be a complete disaster but it's hard because there are other players who if you're not four betting them you're leaving money on the table and that's something that comes up in chess too that the size of the mistake is so important right that, you know, in chess, we're always looking at the computer output where if we go from plus two to plus half, that's like really bad, right? Whereas in poker, it seems like people are more focused on the binary, like whether it was wrong or it was right. I think people are pretty aware of some mistakes don't really matter. And some mistakes are just like completely unforgivable and gigantic. And I guess sometimes with the binary thing, like even if you raise eight, five suited under the gun, what the cost of that mistake in isolation is probably not that bad. If you raise 8-5 suited, you're probably raising also all the other hands that are better than that. Unless there's like a one-off thing where the person just was upset and did it, but it's probably indicative of like a 
bigger problem. There's some debate about the main event and how much people can open in a tournament with so many um, amateurs. Uh, what would be like the largest amount that you would open at a table in the main event? I mean, there are situations when I would raise any two on the button, which is a pretty big deviation. I wouldn't do anything too crazy raising like under the gun, even if people are still playing somewhat tight. The probability of eight people having a decent hand still exists. I guess raising 7-2 offsuit on the button. So you mentioned um, emotional control and poker. And I wanted to hear more about your one of the organizations that's really important to you, Strong Minds, right? Um, that's a, trying to help women who are depressed in Uganda. And can you tell us more about how you got involved in that and what they do? For many years, I've been looking for a charity that is involved in the mental health space. The charities that I've selected over the years, I believe, have all been cost-efficient, like dollar-per-dollar, dollar, doing a lot of good. Looking for a charity in the mental health space is tricky because the brain is expensive to work on and hard to get results. If you imagine like being in a major city, getting somebody therapy, it would be very, very expensive, generally. Strong Minds, I liked the idea of putting together women in these group therapy sessions. They had data on it. I also liked supporting a little bit of a smaller organization. If their budget is in the, the two to three million range, I could raise an amount of that that feels very real compared to a charity that might have a hundred million dollars when I'm a drop in the bucket. Uh, from a personal satisfaction level, I enjoy being a little bit more involved. And given that I've had my own issues with mental health over the years, I found it like closer to my heart and I wanted to help people in the same situation. And this is very cost-effective because it's group therapy. So you mentioned that you pay $100 and you get how much group therapy? 12, 60 to 90 minute sessions. And it is very often someone who took place in it that ends up leading the next one. World Health Organization or whatever, it's like a three-letter acronym. I forget what it's called. Mm -hmm. If you like read what they have to say on ways to treat depression and anxiety, they, uh, Strong Minds is doing exactly what they recommend. And what have you found most effective? Has it been one-on-one -on -one or was it more hot yoga? What was the number one effective thing for you? For me, meditation has been, on days I don't meditate, I notice a very stark difference. I had one of the more intense experiences of my life the first time I did a guided meditation and I've been meditating almost every day since seven or eight years later. I would say meditation and exercise are unbelievable tools and just generally when I am taking care of myself I notice like a very very stark difference. Is there a higher incidence of depression in poker players than in the general population? That seems very very likely. I think you deal with more turmoil, more isolation, and I also could imagine some of the traits in depressed people might also be traits to lead them to like spend many hours alone studying on their computer. I think my own bouts with depression have been involved in making me such a great player. I would say it was like a multi-year thing where I didn't realize it's that wasn't how you were supposed to feel because it was just the way that I felt, but I thought it was it was very useful in allowing me to like grind through downswings when something would go wrong. I kind of, I just wouldn't feel anything either way. I would just flatlined. And I think also having overcome it, then you kind of just believe that like anything is possible. So you think depression could be an ingredient to success in poker because being able to grapple with the vicissitudes of depression allow you to deal with the ups and downs of poker? This is a little bit of a cop-out, but I believe that 
almost anything could be turned into a positive if you is if you frame it the right way and the way that you respond to it. And in mental health and depression, do you also experience like upswings where you you feel like super happy sometimes, or was it mostly just downswings mentally? Well, I would say I'm a bit more even keeled than most. A little hard to rattle in both directions. I still go through like several months, like multiple month periods where I wake up and I would say like deep down, I truly believe that it's going to be a wonderful day. And sometimes I go through anxious or depressed periods where I wake up and it's like, Ugh. but nowadays the good days really outnumber the bad days. Wonderful. Sixes in general, how do they rank on your favorite hands? I cannot think of any very large hands that I've won with sixes, but I'm certainly never going to forget this hand against Rainer. I'll say they're my 26th favorite hand. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was looking for. I was looking for you to just like randomly pick out a number. Yeah. 23 is my favorite number, so maybe I should have picked that one, but it seems a little bit high given how many sweet student hands there are. Yeah, and also, I mean, it sounds like you have a poor memory, for, oh, but in a way, maybe it's a positive memory because you had this revelation afterwards. I am very happy with where th- I am in my life and who knows what results would have changed what. I mean, that also ended up being my best summer ever poker-wise. I am all around, like, pretty comfortable with where I am and, like, my relationship with poker, so... And I like Rainer a lot, so good for him. Well, how do we find out more about you, Dan? Twitter would be the best way to reach me, at DanSmithHala. Uh, I have a website, DanSmithHala.com, where you can email me at, but I would say Twitter would be the best way. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for coming to talk to me about this hand, the sixes, and follow him on Dan Smith. Holla. Thanks for having me. Thank you. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe and write a review. Your subscriptions, reviews, shares on social media truly helps motivate me as a quest for 169 intensifies. Also find me at US Chess Women, where I host another podcast, Ladies Night, and follow updates on the grid at Jen Shahadi on Twitter and Instagram. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got time.